0: Father, as we study the Word of God, we believe that as our hearts are open and as the Spirit leads us, that we come to know the truth. And that truth becomes a part of our very being. And it's not a matter of of believing a philosophy or adhering to a religion, but it's part of becoming one with you and understanding in the depth of our soul what the real meaning of Scripture is and who Jesus is, and who you are as the Father, and who the Holy Spirit is, and recognizing our purpose in this world, and what your kingdom is about. And we're so grateful, Lord, that you have given us a place in your kingdom, and you've given us each a job to do. And I ask that you will help us to be faithful in that job, and that as we face difficulties along the way, that we will turn to you, and to your word, and and to Uh, other members of the family for the help we need. And, Father, I pray that you will protect us from the assault of the evil one and that you will keep us faithful and that when Jesus does return, he will find faith on the earth and it will be in our hearts and in the hearts of those that we dearly love. So, Father, we ask that you will guide us now this morning. You'll keep our eyes fixed on you as we uh, look at these passages or this, these many passages in the Scripture this morning. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> well, I hope you have your fingers limbered up. We'll be looking at several passages of Scripture uh, this morning. We'll begin, of course, with our passage in Genesis. Those of you ladies who weren't here last week, uh, the first part of the outline uh, was, of course, what we covered. And... Uh, We'll be rereading that, uh, that passage here this morning, but uh, focusing only on the latter portion of it. Beginning at uh, chapter 37, verse 29. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So he tore his garments, and he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. As for me... Where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the varicolored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. And he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces." So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. A lot is said in very few verses here. last week we talked about Reuben's encounter and, and how it impacted him and the story that was concocted, and how it was presented to their father, and how the father himself just leaped to the conclusion as to what had happened to his son without the boys having to spell it out for him and certainly that was a part of the emotional state in which he had uh, to which he had. Uh, you know, brought himself, really, in his anxiety. You know, the Scripture does not say for nothing that we are to be anxious for nothing. And, and the reason the Scripture says that is that we do not get ourselves worked up into a situation where we jump to conclusions and where we make bad judgments because we're emotionally distraught. Now, certainly we, we aren't going to be people who walk around uh, stoically as we encounter the events of this life. But anxiety uh, simply uh, creates not only emotional problems, but physical problems. And God wants us to stay free from that and to trust Him. And I suppose it's really one of the hardest things of the Christian life uh, to just sit back and relax in God and trust Him for the very little things as well as the big things. Seems like we've finally learned to trust God in something, then something else comes along the line and... (laughs) We get all uptight about it. And certainly, Jacob might have come to a different conclusion had he not been so anxious about the welfare of this beloved son of his. He simply convinced himself. And and we focused at the end of class last time on, to me, the the main point of, of those first verses in this passage anyway, that... We, we can become so distraught and so morose and, and, and so unable to be con, uh, console, console, counseled <laughs> or uh, consoled, is what I'm really trying to say here, that, uh, that we just impact everybody around us in a negative way. And that's not what God wants us as believers to do, and that's not the way we're to be. And and we studied the passage in Corinthians in Second Corinthians chapter one that really focuses on on what we are to be and, and how the hard things come into our life so that we in turn can minister comfort to those as God has comforted us. And to recognize that He is the God of all comfort. And that doesn't mean we don't have some problems, it doesn't mean we don't have pain. That it means we need to learn to rest in God and trust in God in the midst of our pain and know that He's going to lead us through. Well, in verse 35 of this particular passage, we are introduced to a very important concept, and that is the concept of the afterlife. We kind of take it for granted because we we live in a society uh, which has been permeated by Christian teaching uh, from the earliest years. Oh, I mean, you look at the Jamestown colony, and you might not consider very many of those uh, founders of Jamestown Christian in their actions and everything, but they came out of a Christian context in, in England. Most of them were at least nominally Anglican. And, and others were founded, as you know, by the Puritans and the Pilgrims. And, and as a result, we have this, uh, this, this Christian context and so the idea of heaven and hell is, is seemingly taken for granted by many, at least. But as you go through Scripture, you do not find, particularly in the Old Testament, the concept of the afterlife just leaping off of every page at you. And so as we look at this uh, particular passage, again, rereading verse 35 And his sons and his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. I want to talk about sheol a little bit here this morning beyond its meaning uh, uh, of just the grave there is additional meaning to to the word than than simply the grave. Prior to this particular verse as you read as we have studied through the book of Genesis there's very little to give us much idea of what the people of this time and before, thought about the afterlife. What did the patriarchs know about the afterlife? Well, first of all, if we go back to Genesis chapter 3 again. We were there about two or three years ago. You probably remember. Chapter 3 of Genesis, uh, verse 17. This is, of course, after the fall. And and God is speaking to the various ones who who partook in this fall, to the serpent and to Eve and then to Adam. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the fruit about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That sounds pretty terminal right there. It sounds kind of final. You know, you're, you're taken from the dust, and boy, you're going back to the dust, and it almost sounds like that's the end. Uh, you, you, you wouldn't necessarily interpret from this passage that there was any life beyond Uh, And, of course, many who study the Bible from a purely secular point of view with no understanding of of God would would read it that way and seem to understand it that way. From the fifth chapter of Genesis, we get a little inkling, though, that there was some understanding of the afterlife because in the 24th verse, it says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, we could say, well, that means God just killed him and put him in a grave. Well, you know, we might not be able to really argue with that, except, of course, it says Enoch walked with God, and so that sounds like if God took him, he took him because he was being obedient, and it doesn't sound like he would just kill him. And you don't need to turn to it if you don't wish to, but let me just read in the um, 11th chapter of Hebrews this helps us to understand that's not what was meant, because in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, in verse 5, it says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And so it says there specifically that he did not taste death. And so it does not mean that he died. It means God took him into his presence. And so we have an inkling here of some kind of an understanding of afterlife beginning to show through. Another statement that can be interpreted in that direction is in the 25th chapter of Genesis, where we're talking about the last days of Abraham on this earth, after he had taken his second wife, uh, third wife actually, And all these children were born to him late in his life. In uh, 25th chapter, the 8th verse, it says, And Abraham breathed his last, and died in a ripe old age, an old man, and satisfied with life. And he was gathered to his people. Now, that particular phrase, he was gathered to his people, could be interpreted as uh, that he went to be with his ancestors. In the sense that he went to join them in the afterlife and in the spirit world. Now, it's not spelled out there Uh, as such, but it could be interpreted that way and may have been understood in that sense by the people of that time. Now, we know that Abraham understood something of the afterlife, that he was searching for a city, we're told, uh, whose builder and maker was God. But how do we know that from the Old Testament? We can't know that from uh, from the Old Testament. As you read through the Old Testament, you will not find these statements concerning what Abraham understood of the afterlife. You have to go again to Hebrews. And in, the, in that same 11th chapter where we were a minute ago, in the ninth verse of Hebrews 11, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And then if you drop down to verse 13, all these died in faith without having received the promises, the the finality of the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And it's interesting how the uh, writer of of the Hebrews makes this plain what's meant here. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they came out, either referring to Padan Aram or going clear back to Ur in in, uh, Sumer, they would have had opportunity to go back there. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now, where did the author of the Hebrews get this concept? How did the author of the Hebrews know that Abraham was searching for a city whose found builder and maker was God? How how did, I mean, certainly from the Old Testament, we can glean that Abraham felt as if he were a foreigner uh, here in in the land and that he didn't really come into full possession of what God had promised, but that he was seeking a land that was eternal. How, How can we understand that? I mean, where does the writer of the Hebrews get this idea? He had the same Old Testament before him that we have. So he certainly couldn't have gotten all of that from the Old Testament because we can't. So where did he get it? Well, obviously by revelation from God at the time that he wrote the book of Hebrews. We have to believe, I think it's important that we believe, that every single one of these books from Genesis through the book of Revelation was written by divine inspiration of God upon the heart of the writer. And sometimes the writer puts in things that we can find no antecedent for, you know, at the end of the Old, New Testament, no antecedent for in the, in the Old Testament, and yet it refers to somebody in the Old Testament. And some people would say, well, the liberals would say, well, it's some kind of oral tradition that was carried down, you know. Well, oral tradition or, or not, if it's in here, my firm belief is it's the truth. Because God superintended the 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 development of his word, and uh, so this is really true and and Abraham to whatever extent he really understood a city and, and what it really mean or meant to him, he was looking beyond this life to a better life with God. And so the idea of an afterlife was firmly in the minds of Abraham, and certainly probably many others of the patriarchs. So let's look at this concept of Sheol here. In, this, in the Old Testament, we have this, uh, this, this uh, picture of a kind of a shadowy underworld called Sheol. Now, if, if you have a Bible like mine in the, ne- in the margin, every time Sheol shows up, they have a little note. You go over there, it says, the netherworld. You know, the netherworld. world. <laughs> The netherworld, uh, you know, that, that other shadowy world out there somewhere to which we go and uh, who knows what it means. And, and that's what many people have as a view of what happens to them when they die. Well, they think there's an afterlife, but they haven't got an idea where they're going to go or what's, what it means. Now, most people don't sit on the edge of death looking into the yawning, yawning chasm of hell. They just feel like, you know, you, they've they read these stories about uh, near-death experiences and, and this bright light and this figure at the end of it, and you're being drawn towards this magnetically, and the music is so beautiful. And they think that, you know, that's the way it's going to be for everyone. Or they think maybe, as and, Voltaire and others did, that, hey, when it's over, it's over. You're dead and gone, you're dead and gone, just like the bug you squashed yesterday. And, and it's over with. And there's no further consciousness. But latent in every human being, I believe, is a sense that this is not all there is. And most of us certainly certainly hope this isn't all there is. Now, in our society, we could say, well, you know, life's not all that difficult compared to living in Bangladesh down there in the floodplain of the Ganges Brahmaputra where, you know, every year it floods and hundreds of thousands are swept out to sea or whatever and you're living in this swamp all the time. Our life is, is easier in, in many of the physical senses, but still, there, there's got to be more, and it's a sense built in. It's like it says in, in Ecclesiastes, and it's the title of one of Don Richardson's book. God has set eternity in their hearts. Every man, woman, and child built on this planet has eternity in his or her heart in the sense of an awareness that there is life beyond this. I, I would think many anthropologists would just be overwhelmed by the fact, as they go out there and study these different primitive peoples of the world, that they all have, uh, they all have religions that are very much similar in some ways, and they all believe in a spirit world, and they all believe in going to a, a world after this life. Why is that? You know, if, if human beings e- evolved from some kind of a primordial sea as a, as a blob of protoplasm that kind of has become, you know, here we are today type thing... Why is this? It makes no sense. But this is the picture because we are the children of God. We have been created by God. That Sheol was conceived as a place under the earth. Whatever that meant, something under the earth, seems to be implied at least in Jacob's reference here as we read it, that he was going to go down to Sheol in mourning. Somehow, shell is, is usually portrayed as being down. And that's, of course, why a lot of people today th- uh, think that the Christian belief in heaven and hell is, is rooted in, in antiquity and medieval concepts of, of up being heaven and down being hell, and hell being somewhere down in the center of the earth. Well, we know the center of the earth, or at least we believe the center of the earth is pretty hot. You know, every hundred feet or so that you go down, temperature rises a degree Fahrenheit, and uh, so we we know it does get warm as you go down. If you've ever read Jules Verne's story, Journey to the Center of the World, he has a hollow core for the Earth, which of course we know scientifically isn't so. But anyway, he has this hollow core down there and uh, I, it's sort of like many people have this idea that you know hell's down there in the center of the earth. And it's sort of you know, you, you could infer this from, from what is being said in the Old Testament about Sheol going down to Sheol. Now the term Sheol is used sixty-six times in the Old Testament. And this is its is the first reference to it here that we've read this morning in the thirty-seventh chapter of Genesis. Now Moses Seems to have had a very similar concept himself uh, to that of Jacob concerning Sheol. In the uh, 16th chapter of Numbers, we have the story uh, where Korah had led a rebellion against Moses. And the idea was I mean, why should Moses be the only one who leads this, this, this nation? Why can't others? I mean, we're priests. Why can't we lead this people too? And so they rebelled against the authority of Moses, and so uh, this is the high noon encounter here in the 16th chapter, and uh, Moses is saying, well, you know, if these guys are right, then let their end be a natural end. Let them die the way other men die. But if they're wrong, I'm going to ask God for a a mighty miracle. I'm going to ask God to open the earth, and for they and their... Tents to all drop in. For them and their tents to just drop into this hole and then the earth will shut up again. Well, nobody there had ever seen that happen before. So Moses was asking for a mighty big thing here. I don't know. To me, that's very reminiscent of Elijah standing on the top of Mount Carmel and expecting God to, to light a fire on a big, soggy mess in front of him here on this altar. And God did it. Verse 31. It came about as he finished speaking all these words, the ground opened that was under them. Uh, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and all their possessions, and all the men who belonged to Korah with all their possessions. And so they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. So obviously the idea was Sheol's down. Again, there's a part of, of the understanding of Sheol, which simply means the grave, but there's something intrinsic in the word that goes beyond the grave itself, having to do with the afterlife. And we'll see this as we look at the next series of passages. As, as you read through the Old Testament, you come up with the concept that Sheol is a place which is down. Sheol is a place which is kind of shadowy. Sheol is a place of, of silence. It, it's, a, it's a place where you have no idea what's going on on the earth. But it's a place that you cannot even escape from God. Well, let's look at some of these passages that, that illustrate this. In Job, the 10th chapter, for example. Verse 21, Job ten twenty one. Before I go, and I shall not return, to the land of darkness and deep shadow, The land of utter gloom as darkness itself, of deep shadow without order, which shines as the darkness. Now, Job has just said, and it's kind of interesting the way it translates in English there in the 19th verse, he says, I should have been as though I had been not carried from womb to tomb. Anybody who thinks they coined that term? from womb to tomb. You know, what he's lamenting is the part in between <laughs> the womb to the tomb. And that's what he's, what he's in right now. And, and, and he's saying that all of this is driving me down into that dark, shadowy place where there seems to be no order. In other words, it's almost as if this place called Sheol, which he's inferring here, is chaotic. In, in Psalm 143, verse 3 for the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in dark places like those who have long been dead. I realize this is poetry. And a lot of things may be said in poetry that you can't literalize. But, but it seems like what's, what's coming forth here is the idea that the dead are in a dark place the dead are dwelling in a dark place. And the idea of dwelling Im- implies life, you know, that, that they're conscious of the fact that they're dwelling in this dark place. It doesn't imply extinction. If you read some of the articles that have come out in, in recent uh, months in some of the major magazines about heaven, about hell, all kinds of arguments are uh, being uh, presented, you find that even within the evangelical movement, there are those who struggle with this idea of, of an afterlife for the wicked, which is endless. And even some of the, the leading evangelical scholars have this, at least they seem to feel like there's got to be a point of termination. There's got to be an ultimate extinction, uh, where you know, this e- idea of an eternal hell with people dwelling consciously, eternally, in, a, in a, this kind of condition is, is, is not there. And of course, they, they refer to certain passages. But there are many other passages which seem to propound what most evangelicals and, and even non evangelicals have uh, understood to be the eternal condition of the lost. Psalm 6 5 talks about the concept of darkness, I, I mean, of silence. In the fifth verse we read, and there is no mention of thee in death, in Sheol, who will give you thanks? The implication is no one. If we go down to Sheol, who can thank you, Lord? Now that simply could be, in this sense, uh, a, a, a reference to the grave with, with no real thought about afterlife necessarily. But but certainly because of the way the term Sheol used is used generically through the Old Testament, there seems to be an implication of ongoing existence. In the 88th Psalm, we have a very interesting combination of terms here. 88th Psalm, beginning at the 10th verse. Will thou perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise thee? Will thy loving kindness be declared in the grave? Thy faithfulness in Abaddon, which means destruction. Will thy wonders be made known in the darkness? And thy righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Notice how many concepts are presented there. The idea that that uh, there's silence. There's there's no ability for the dead to praise God that it's, it's, uh, it's a place of destruction, that, that there's darkness, that it's a land of forgetfulness, that you're, you're, you have no thought, apparently, of the life from which you came. It, this seems to be in the mind of, of the psalmist here as, as he presents this. But again, of course, we're talking about poetry, so we have to be careful to not literalize it too much. Psalm 115, verse 17 The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. Now, of course, Ecclesiastes can be interpreted a lot of ways, and often we think of Ecclesiastes as being uh, (laughs) statements made by a rather desperate person who had kind of burnt the candles at both ends and the middle too, and was just reaping the consequences, and and is very negative uh, in the statements. But in Ecclesiastes 9 verse 5, we read for Ecclesiastes, comes right after Proverbs. The question is, where, do, where does Ecclesiasticus come? <laughs> well, fortunately, it's not part of the canon. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. And then in um, verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, verily do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. That's a very negative concept here. It's kind of like, you know, it's almost as if we're talking about the grave and the grave only. You're just going to go in the grave and and you die and then, And and it's over for all practical purposes, at least having anything to do with uh, life as it's known to be on, on the earth. No reward. Memory is forgotten. They don't know anything in this dead condition. Well, finally, it's a place, though, where you can't get away from God. Psalm 139, verse 8 And this little portion of Psalm, uh, one of the things uh, amongst many that I like about Psalm 139 is that the first little group of verses is a statement of the omniscience of God. The second little group of verses is a statement of the omnipresence of God. And the third little group, down down to verse 16, is a statement of the omnipotence of God. So you have these great attributes of God just thinking about that, yesterday, again, referring to these, this, it was a couple who came to our door. And one of the questions I asked them at the end, they were very adamant about their particular belief. But uh, one of the questions I asked them at the end was had to do with, they were big on, you know, they're big on angels and so forth. And I, I said um, about um, Lucifer, Satan, falling and they, they were asking me questions, well, why God would do this and that and the other thing if he knew this would be the outcome. And so I said, well, why did God create Lucifer or Satan if he, uh, since he knew what would happen? And He said, well, he didn't know. I said, oh, no, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> if this is your idea of who God is, I said, that's not the God of this book if God didn't know what was going to happen. And their implication was that God doesn't even know what you're going to choose to do whether you're going to choose to follow him or not choose to follow him. And I thought, they got a, there's a major weak point right there. In Psalm 139, verse 8, If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. And Job had a similar concept. Chapter 26, verse 6. Naked is Sheol before him, and Abaddon has no covering. Just because we go down to Sheol or we go into the grave doesn't mean that no longer can God find us or can God see us. Now, reading through these verses, the only point for reading through these passages to me is to get a little bit of an idea of what the Old Testament people thought about the afterlife. And as you do so, you you get a bit of a a negative feeling, I think, or at least I do. It's almost as if there's little distinction between the lot of the righteous and the lot of the unrighteous. It's it's as if in in the Old Testament, if you walk with God, you'll be blessed on this earth and you'll have progeny for for generations down. If you don't walk with God, you'll be cursed by God and, and your children will be cursed. But as far as the afterlife is concerned, it's kind of like you just have to trust God that it'll be okay, even though it's going to be silent, it's going to be dark. Certainly for the unrighteous, this shadowy pit is their just due. But there's not a strong distinction presented that the righteous are going to stand in glory with God in this eternally wonderful heaven and the unrighteous are going to dwell in this awful pit. There's not a big distinction made as we we find it in in the New Testament. And I'm not saying that the distinction didn't exist. What I'm driving at is their understanding wasn't complete at that particular time. Uh, It seems, for example, let's look at the prophet Jonah for a minute. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, page 1164. It's right after Obadiah. Of course, Obadiah is only a few verses long, so. Jonah, we we know the story of Jonah so well, the great fish has swallowed him and, and took a dive. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. Ever feel like you were praying to the Lord your God from the stomach of a fish? Yeah. I think most of us have had that feeling at some time. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. Thou didst hear my voice. Then down in verse 6, I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But thou hast brought Up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. It's as if he understood that because he had acted in an unrighteous way, he was being taken down to the very pit itself, even though he was yet obviously alive and he was still uh, existing in this life. But it felt like to him as that fish sounded that he was being taken down into Sheol, and he was literally crying to God out of this, this, this dank, dark, dank place. I don't, know, I don't know. I expect it's pretty dark inside of a fish like that, especially as it's down a few hundred or however many feet it went down in the Mediterranean. And so he, he, he has this illusion here of, of his condition being like that of the pit or of, of Sheol. Now, the term Shell and Abaddon, as we saw it back in the uh, 88th Psalm, are often associated one with the other. And of course, the term Abaddon means destruction. And so, again, it gives that kind of a negative flavor. Let me read in uh, Proverbs 15, uh, verse 11 Shell and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of men. And then in the 27th Proverb, the 20th verse, Shell and Abaddon are never satisfied, nor are the eyes of a man ever satisfied. I mean, there seems to be always room for more in Shell and Abaddon. I mean, there is no other termination for life on this earth than the grave and what is beyond the grave. Yes, Enoch walked with God, and God took him, but he was unique. Up to this point in time, of course, later Elijah would enjoy a same, the same situation, but the two become unique. What is interesting to me is the fact that uh, even in the New Testament, the two concepts seem to be tied together. In Revelation 9 11, we read, and this is talking about the locusts that are poured out across the earth after the sounding of the fifth angel. And they have a king over them. The angel of the abyss, his name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek, he has, the same, he has the name Apollyon, destruction, destroyer. The name that seems to be associated with the pit, destruction, the pit, Sheol. Now we find clearly in the Old Testament that Sheol seems to be down. References to heaven seem to apply imply up. But as you read through, you don't get the feeling, except for maybe in the case of Elijah, you don't get the feeling that up to heaven is where people went, that they went to Sheol. There's no real clear teaching about separation. You know, the sheep and the goat as we know it in the, in the New Testament. Let me just read this verse. You don't have to try to find it. In Amos 9.2, though they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. Though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Of course, the whole point here is talking about those who are under the hand of God's destruction. No matter where they flee to, God will get a hold of them. But the idea is here, the, the descent into Sheol, the ascent into heaven, and, and there's no real clear distinction between righteous and unrighteous because it's as if, you know, the unrighteous could try to get into heaven. I mean, not, they, could, they can't, but it's almost as if that is at least part of the word picture being given here. Now, we, because of our understanding of the New Testament, can impose upon certain Old Testament passages our understanding. For example, at the very end of the book of Isaiah... In the 66th chapter, we read this. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they shall go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all mankind. Now, what would that mean to someone living in the Old Testament days? I mean, how would they interpret that passage? Well, we look at it and we say, ah, the new heavens, the new earth, uh, heaven, the eternal abode, works, and then these people who are, where the fire is not going to be quenched, and the worm doesn't die, and and so forth, you know, hell and, and all of this. But... That's, I think, a New Testament concept imposed upon the Old Testament rather than the understanding of an Old Testament person might have about that particular passage. I I think what we're looking at here is a sense of progressive revelation. I do not believe that revelation in the sense of of new light coming from God to man continues today. I believe the Bible is, 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 is the totality of God's revelation to man. But it was not complete in Genesis. The, the people who lived in Genesis didn't have complete understanding as, as much as we can have today of what God's plan and purpose was and what he intended to do. But as time passed, that would, would change. I mean, what did Abraham really know? Did Abraham know as much as Isaiah? Isaiah? Isaiah had a vision of the Lord high and lifted up and his train filling the temple. Did Abraham ever have such a vision? Did Isaiah know as much as Daniel? Some of what Daniel uh, knew had to be sealed up. But did Daniel know what Paul knew? Did, Did Paul have the understanding that John, who stood in the island of Patmos and had this great revelation, did he have as much understanding of these things as John? I think not. I, I think as time passed, the revelation was expanded, and, and you and I are the recipients of the total revelation. and We can read from Genesis through the book of Revelation, and, and we can get the whole picture, the whole scene. But those who lived in the Old Testament days could not. Well, you're, you're familiar with the passages. Let me just turn to it quickly here. The clock is going faster than I am somehow or other. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. The implication is that the revelation now is fuller through the Son than it had been through the prophets. And this seems to be more explicit as you go to Luke chapter 10 verse 21. At that very time he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent, and did reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in thy sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son will reveal him. And turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see these, see these, the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see, and did not see them, to hear the things which you hear, and did not hear them. So they were, they were receiving the fuller revelation. And so as you go from Genesis through Revelation, the concept of the afterlife evolves, pardon, it evolve is a perfectly good word, I hope we all understand that, and, and, and that it evolved not in a materialistic sense, but in a divine sense, from a scanty understanding to a fuller understanding. It's really not until we come to the, to the words of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels and then to the words of the writers of the epistles that the revelation of God to man is brought to a conclusion. For example, the New Testament gives us a much clearer understanding of the afterlife, which is the focus of what we're talking about today, and of the separation of the righteous and the unrighteous. There's no, there's no uh, haziness here. It's, it's really quite clear. Jesus taught us who was going to dwell in heaven with him. In verse, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 14 of John, let, your heart, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Clean and clear implication, that God, those who are his disciples would be with him eternally dwelling in places that he has built. No netherworld no dark shadowy place, no place of silence, of gloom, but in the glorious presence of Christ Himself in, in dwelling places that He has made. Whatever all that implies. You know, we sing the song, I've got a mansion on a hilltop, you know. Well, maybe or maybe not. Maybe it's just a nice condo <laughs> uh, up there. I, I, you know, I don't know. But whatever it is, we, I, I personally think we have to really completely try to to change our, our framework of thinking. Because when you, when you leave this earth, I think you have to try to, and it's impossible for us to do it, but to step outside of temporal interpretation and spatial interpretation. We live within time and space. We can't get away from it. But in eternity, it's going to be different. I think. <laughs> On the other side of the coin, you have in Matthew 23... statement as in verse 31. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? And then in the 18th chapter, the 9th verse, and if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes, to be cast into fiery hell. Now the word there is literally Gehenna. And Gehenna seems to have referred to uh, the, uh, the refuse pit on the south and western side of the old city of Jerusalem in what was known as the Valley of Hinnom. It's a nice little park down there in the bottom of Gehenna today. But it was a place where fires were burning all the time and smoke was rising and all the trash was thrown. And that seemed to be the best word picture to describe the place to which those would be thrown or into which those would be thrown who were a brood of vipers, as Jesus described them. Now some wonder whether the New Testament is only a more complete revelation or if there is a major change described here. Is Sheol literally different from heaven and hell? I mean, was there actually a place called Sheol which has been transformed? Or is it just a different understanding? Well, oh shoot, we'll we'll have to end with this I guess. (laughs) I thought I'd finish early because I only had two little pages of notes here, but... uh, 16 of uh, Luke, verse 19. And, of course, we know the story uh, well here. Now, there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at the gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table... Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame." But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and prophet, and the prophets, let him hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. The last verse, I think, of this passage helps us to really understand, I think, why it is we have to be really careful about how big a noise we make about signs and wonders. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. I won't get into that can of worms now, but the, the, the point here is this is a parable. But Jesus doesn't teach parables that have no significance to real things, usually. And so it seems that the picture is that Sheol was divided in two regions. One is called... Abraham's bosom, or paradise, and the other is called Hades, or a place of torment. And the picture which seems to come from other passages is that when Jesus returned to heaven, that he took Abraham's bosom region from Sheol with him. And so Sheol was literally a single place, but with a great chasm, with paradise on one side and Hades on the other. And that when Jesus went to heaven, he took the paradise side with him. Um, that's an interpretation. But nevertheless, it, it seems to make sense. At least it does to me. And then re- if, if we had time, we'd look at that uh, Revelation 20 passage, and, and you can read it. But it uh, basically is saying that Hades and death will be cast into the lake of fire. And it's if the other half of Sheol then will be catapulted finally into the lake of fire for eternity whatever all that means so we're coming from paradise lost in genesis to paradise regained in the book of revelation and seeing the 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 change of understanding of the afterlife at least as i see it here in these passages